Chapter 2, Part F of The Wealth of Nations, Book 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Book 5, Chapter 2, Part F of the sources of the general or public revenue of the society consumable commodities whether necessaries or luxuries may be taxed in two different ways the consumer may either pay an annual sum on account of his using or consuming goods of a certain kind or the goods may be taxed while they remain in the hands of the dealer and before they are delivered to the consumer the consumable goods which last a considerable time before they are consumed altogether are most properly taxed in the one way those of which the consumption is either immediate or more speedy in the other the coach tax and plate tax are examples of the former method of imposing the greater part of the other duties of excise and customs of the latter a coach may with good management last ten or twelve years it might be taxed once for all before it comes out of the hands of the coachmaker but it is certainly more convenient for the buyer to pay four pounds a year for the privilege of keeping a coach than to pay all at once forty or forty-eight pounds additional price to the coachmaker or a sum equivalent to what the tax is likely to cost him during the time he uses the same coach a service of plate in the same manner may last more than a century it is certainly easier for the consumer to pay five shillings a year for every hundred ounces of plate near one per cent of the value than to redeem this long annuity at five and twenty or thirty years purchase which would enhance the price at least five and twenty or thirty per cent the different taxes which affect houses are certainly more conveniently paid by moderate annual payments than by a heavy tax of equal value upon the first building or sale of the house it was the well-known proposal of Sir Matthew Decker that all commodities, even those of which the consumption is either immediate or speedy, should be taxed in this manner, the dealer advancing nothing but the consumer paying a certain annual sum for the license to consume certain goods. The object of his scheme was to promote all the different branches of foreign trade, particularly the carrying trade, by taking away all duties upon importation and exportation, and thereby enabling the merchant to employ his whole capital and credit in the purchase of goods and the freight of ships, no part of either being diverted towards the advancing of taxes. The project, however, of taxing in this manner goods of immediate or speedy consumption seems liable to the four following very important objections. First, the tax would be more unequal or not so well proportioned to the expense and consumption of the different contributors, as in the way in which it is commonly imposed. The taxes upon ale, wine, and spiritous liquors, which are advanced by the dealers, are finally paid by the different consumers, exactly in proportion to their respective consumption. But if the tax were to be paid by purchasing a license to drink those liquors, the sober would, in proportion to his consumption, be taxed much more heavily than the drunken consumer a family which exercised great hospitality would be taxed much more lightly than one who entertained fewer guests secondly this mode of taxation by paying for an annual half-yearly or quarterly license to consume certain goods would diminish very much one of the principal conveniences of taxes upon goods of speedy consumption the piecemeal payment in the price of threepence halfpenny which is at present paid for a pot of porter, 
the different taxes upon malt hops and beer together with the extraordinary profit which the brewer charges for having advanced then may perhaps amount to about three halfpence if a workman can conveniently spare those three halfpence he buys a pot of porter if he cannot he contents himself with a pint and as a penny saved is a penny got he thus gains a farthing by his temperance he pays the tax piecemeal as he can afford to pay it and when he can afford to pay it and every act of payment is perfectly voluntary and what he can avoid if he chooses to do so thirdly such taxes would operate less as sumptuary laws when the license was once purchased whether the purchaser drunk much or drunk little his tax would be the same fourthly if a workman were to pay all at once by yearly half-yearly or quarterly payments a tax equal to what he at present pays with little or no inconveniency upon all the different pots and pints of porter which he drinks in any such period of time the sum might frequently distress him very much this mode of taxation therefore it seems evident could never without the most grievous oppression produce a revenue nearly equal to what is derived from the present mode without any oppression in several countries however commodities of an immediate or very speedy consumption are taxed in this manner in holland people pay so much a head for a license to drink tea i have already mentioned a tax upon bread which so far as it is consumed in farmhouses and country villages is there levied in the same manner the duties of excise are imposed chiefly upon goods of home produce destined for home consumption they are imposed only upon a few sorts of goods of the most general use there can never be any doubt either concerning the goods which are subject to those duties or concerning the particular duty which each species of goods is subject to they fall almost altogether upon what i call luxuries excepting always the four duties above mentioned upon salt soap leather candles and perhaps that upon green glass the duties of customs are much more ancient than those of excise they seem to have been called customs as denoting customary payments which had been in use for time immemorial they appear to have been originally considered as taxes upon the profits of merchants during the barbarous times of feudal anarchy merchants like all the other inhabitants of burghs were considered as little better than emancipated bondmen whose persons were despised and whose gains were envied the great nobility who had consented that the king should tallage the profits of their own tenants were not unwilling that he should tallage likewise those of an order of men whom it was much less their interest to protect in those ignorant times it was not understood that the profits of merchants are a subject not taxable directly or that the final payment of all such taxes must fall with a considerable overcharge upon the consumers the gains of alien merchants were looked upon more unfavorably than those of english merchants it was natural therefore that those of the former should be taxed more heavily than those of the latter this distinction between the duties upon aliens and those upon english merchants which was begun from ignorance has been continued from the spirit of monopoly or in order to give our own merchants an advantage both in the home and in the foreign market with this distinction the ancient duties of customs were imposed equally upon all sorts of goods necessaries as well as its luxuries goods exported as well as goods imported why should the dealers in one sort of goods it seems to have been thought be more favored than those in another or why should the merchant exporter be more favored than the merchant importer the ancient customs were divided into three branches 
The first, and perhaps the most ancient of all those duties, was that upon wool and leather. It seems to have been chiefly, or altogether, an exportation duty. When the woolen manufacture came to be established in England, lest the king should lose any part of his customs upon wool by the exportation of woolen cloths, a like duty was imposed upon them. The other two branches were, first, a duty upon wine, which, being imposed at so much a ton, was called a tonnage, and, secondly, a duty upon all other goods, which, being imposed at so much a pound of their supposed value, was called a poundage. In the forty-seventh year of Edward the Third, a duty of sixpence in the pound was imposed upon all goods exported and imported, except wools, wool felts, leather, and wines which were subject to particular duties. In the fourteenth of Richard the Second, this duty was raised to one shilling in the pound, but three years afterwards it was again reduced to sixpence. It was raised to eightpence in the second year of Henry the Fourth, and in the fourth of the same prince, to one shilling. From this time, to the ninth year of William the Third, this duty continued at one shilling in the pound. The duties of tonnage and poundage were generally granted to the king by one and the same act of Parliament, and were called the subsidy of tonnage and poundage. The subsidy of poundage, having continued for so long a time at one shilling in the pound, or at five per cent, a subsidy came, in the language of the customs, to denote a general duty of this kind of five per cent. This subsidy, which is now called the old subsidy, still continues to be levied, according to the book of rates established by the twelfth of Charles the Second. The method of ascertaining, by a book of rates, the value of goods subject to this duty, is said to be older than the time of James the First. The new subsidy imposed by the ninth and tenth of William the Third was an additional five per cent upon the greater part of goods. The one-third and the two-third subsidy made up between them another five per cent, of which there were proportionable parts. The subsidy of 1747 made a fourth five per cent upon the greater part of goods, and that of 1759 a fifth upon some particular sorts of goods. Besides those five subsidies, a great variety of other duties have occasionally been imposed upon particular sorts of goods, in order sometimes to relieve the exigencies of the state, and sometimes to regulate the trade of the country, according to the principles of the mercantile system. That system has come gradually more and more into fashion. The old subsidy was imposed indifferently upon exportation as well as importation. The four subsequent subsidies, as well as the other duties which have since been occasionally imposed upon particular sorts of goods, have, with a few exceptions, been laid altogether upon importation. The greater part of the ancient duties, which had been imposed upon the exportation of the goods of home produce and manufacture, have either been lightened or taken away altogether. In most cases, they have been taken away. Bounties have even been given upon the exportation of some of them. Drawbacks, too, sometimes of the whole, and in most cases of a part of the duties which are paid upon the importation of foreign goods, have been granted upon their exportation. Only half the duties imposed by the old subsidy upon importation are drawn back upon exportation, but the whole of these imposed by the latter subsidies and other imposts are, upon the greater parts of the goods, drawn back in the same manner. This growing favor of exportation and discouragement of importation have suffered only a few exceptions, which chiefly concern the materials of some manufacturers. These, our merchants and manufacturers, are willing should come as cheap as possible to themselves, and as dear as possible to their rivals and competitors in other countries. 
Foreign materials are, upon this account, sometimes allowed to be imported duty-free. Spanish wool, for example, flax, and raw linen yarn. The exportation of the materials of home produce, and of those which are the particular produce of our colonies, has sometimes been prohibited, and sometimes subjected to higher duties. The exportation of English wool has been prohibited. That of beaver skins, of beaver wool, and of gum senega, has been subjected to higher duties. Great Britain, by the conquests of Canada and Senegal, having got almost the monopoly of those commodities. That the mercantile system has not been very favorable to the revenue of the great body of the people, to the annual produce of the land and labor of the country, I have endeavored to show in the fourth book of this inquiry. It seems not to have been more favorable to the revenue of the sovereign, so far at least as that revenue depends upon the duties of customs. In consequence of that system, the importation of several sorts of goods has been prohibited altogether. This prohibition has, in some cases, entirely prevented, and in others has very much diminished, the importation of those commodities, by reducing the importers to the necessity of smuggling. It has entirely prevented the importation of foreign woolens, and it has very much diminished that of foreign silks and velvets. In both cases, it has entirely annihilated the revenue of customs which might have been levied upon such importation. The high duties which have been imposed upon the importation of many different sorts of foreign goods in order to discourage their consumption in Great Britain, have, in many cases, served only to encourage smuggling, and, in all cases, have reduced the revenues of the customs below what more moderate duties would have afforded. The saying of Dr. Swift, that in the arithmetic of the customs two and two instead of making four make sometimes only one holds perfectly true with regard to such heavy duties which never could have been imposed had not the mercantile system taught us in many cases to employ taxation as an instrument not of revenue but of monopoly the bounties which are sometimes given upon the exportation of home produce and manufactures and the drawbacks which are paid upon the re-exportation of the greater part of foreign goods have given occasion to many frauds, and to a species of smuggling more destructive of the public revenue than any other. In order to obtain the bounty or drawback, the goods, it is well known, are sometimes shipped and sent to sea, but soon afterwards clandestinely relanded in some other part of the country. The defalcation of the revenue of customs, occasioned by bounties and drawbacks, of which a great part are obtained fraudulently, is very great. The gross produce of the customs in the year which ended on the 5th of January, 1755, amounted to £5,068,000. The bounties which were paid out of this revenue, though in that year there was no bounty upon corn, amounted to £167,806. The drawbacks which were paid upon debentures and certificates to £2,156,800. Bounties and drawbacks together amounted to £2,324,600. In consequence of these deductions, the revenue of the customs amounted only to £2,743,400, from which, deducting £287,900 for the expense of management, in salaries and other incidents, the neat revenue of the customs for that year comes out to be £2,455,500. The expense of management amounts in this manner to between 5 and 6% upon the gross revenue of the customs, and to something more than 10% upon what remains of that revenue, 
after deducting what is paid away in bounties and drawbacks. Heavy duties being imposed upon almost all goods imported, our merchant importers smuggle as much and make entry of as little as they can. Our merchant exporters, on the contrary, make entry of more than they export, sometimes out of vanity, and to pass for great dealers in goods which pay no duty, and sometimes to gain a bounty or a drawback. Our exporters, in consequence of these different frauds, appear upon the custom-house books greatly to overbalance our imports, to the unspeakable comfort of those politicians who measure the national prosperity by what they call the balance of trade. All goods imported, unless particularly exempted, and such exemptions are not very numerous, are liable to some duties of customs. If any goods are imported, not mentioned in the book of rates, they are taxed at four shillings nine and three-quarter pence, for every twenty shillings value, according to the oath of the importer, that is, nearly at five subsidies, or five poundage duties. The book of rates is extremely comprehensive, and enumerates a great variety of articles, many of them little used, and therefore not well known. It is, upon this account, frequently uncertain under what article a particular sort of goods ought to be classed, and, consequently, what duty they ought to pay. Mistakes with regard to this sometimes ruin the custom-house officer, and frequently occasion much trouble, expense, and vexation to the importer. In point of perspicuity, precision, and distinctness, therefore, the duties of customs are much more inferior to those of excise. In order that the greater part of the members of any society should contribute to the public revenue, in proportion to their respective expense, it does not seem necessary that every single article of that expense should be taxed. The revenue which is levied by the duties of excise is supposed to fall as equally upon the contributors as that which is levied by the duties of customs, and the duties of excise are imposed upon a few articles only of the most general used and consumption. It has been the opinion of many people that, by proper management, the duties of customs might likewise, without any loss to the public revenue, and with great advantage to foreign trade, be confined to a few articles only. The foreign articles, of the most general use and consumption in Great Britain, seem at present to consist chiefly in foreign wines and brandies, in some of the productions of America and the West Indies, sugar, rum, tobacco, cocoa-nuts, etc., and in some of those of the East Indies, tea, coffee, chinaware, spiceries of all kinds, several sorts of peace goods, etc. These different articles afford, perhaps at present, the greater part of the revenue which is drawn from the duties of customs. The taxes which at present subsist upon foreign manufactures, if you accept those upon the few contained in the foregoing enumeration, have, the greater part of them, been imposed for the purpose not of revenue, but of monopoly, or to give our merchants an advantage in the home market. By removing all prohibitions, and by subjecting all foreign manufactures to such moderate taxes, as it was found from experience, afforded upon each article the greatest revenue to the public, our own workmen might still have a considerable advantage in the home market, and many articles, some of which at present afford no revenue to government, and others a very inconsiderable one, might afford a very great one. High taxes, sometimes by diminishing the consumption of the taxed commodities, and sometimes by encouraging smuggling, frequently afford a smaller revenue to government than what might be drawn from more moderate taxes. When the diminution of revenue is the effect of the diminution of consumption, there can be but one remedy, and that is the lowering of the tax. When the diminution of revenue is the effect of the encouragement given to smuggling, 
it may perhaps be remedied in two ways either by diminishing the temptation to smuggle or by increasing the difficulty of smuggling the temptation to smuggle can be diminished only by the lowering of the tax and the difficulty of smuggling can be increased only by establishing that system of administration which is most proper for preventing it the excise laws it appears i believe from experience obstruct and embarrass the operations of the smuggler much more effectually than those of the customs by introducing into the customs a system of administration as similar to that of the excise as the nature of the different duties will admit the difficulty of smuggling might be very much increased this alteration it has been supposed by many people might very easily be brought about the importer of commodities liable to any duties of customs it has been said might at his option be allowed either to carry them to his own private warehouse or to lodge them in a warehouse provided either at his own expense or at that of the public but under the key of the custom-house officer and never to be opened but in his presence if the merchant carried them to his own private warehouse the duties to be immediately paid and never afterwards to be drawn back and that warehouse to be at all times subject to the visit and examination of the custom-house officer in order to ascertain how far the quantity contained in it corresponded with that for which the duty had been paid if he carried them to the public warehouse no duty to be paid till they were taken out for home consumption if taken out for exportation to be duty-free proper security being always given that they should be so exported the dealers in those particular commodities either by wholesale or retail to be at all times subject to the visit and examination of the custom-house officer and to be obliged to justify by proper certificates the payment of the duty upon the whole quantity contained in their shops or warehouses what are called the excise duties upon rum imported are at present levied in this manner and the same system of administration might perhaps be extended to all duties upon goods imported provided always that those duties were like the duties of excise confined to a few sorts of goods of the most general use and consumption if they were extended to almost all sorts of goods as at present public warehouses of sufficient extent could not easily be provided and the goods of a very delicate nature or of which the preservation required much care and attention could not safely be trusted by the merchant in any warehouse but his own if by such a system of administration smuggling to any considerable extent could be prevented even under pretty high duties and if every duty was occasionally either heightened or lowered accordingly as it was most likely either the one way or the other to afford the greatest revenue to the state taxation being always employed as an instrument of revenue and never of monopoly it seems not improbable that a revenue at least equal to the present neat revenue of the customs might be drawn from duties upon the importation of only a few sorts of goods of the most general use and consumption and that the duties of customs might thus be brought to the same degree of simplicity certainty and precision as those of excise what the revenue at present loses by drawbacks upon the re-exportation of foreign goods which are afterwards re-landed and consumed at home would under this system be saved altogether if to this saving which would alone be very considerable were added the abolition of all bounties upon the exportation of home produce in all cases in which those bounties were not in reality drawbacks of some duties of excise which had before been advanced it cannot well be doubted but that the neat revenue of customs might after an alteration of this kind be fully equal to what it had ever been before if by such a change of system 
the public revenue suffered no loss the trade and manufactures of the country would certainly gain a very considerable advantage the trade and the commodities not taxed by far the greatest number would be perfectly free and might be carried on to and from all parts of the world with every possible advantage among those commodities would be comprehended all the necessaries of life and all the materials of manufacture so far as the free importation of the necessaries of life reduced their average money price in the home market it would reduce the money price of labor but without reducing in any respect its real recompense the value of money is in proportion to the quantity of the necessaries of life which it will purchase that of the necessaries of life is altogether independent of the quantity of money which can be had for them the reduction in the money price of labor would necessarily be attended with a proportionable one in that of all home manufactures which would thereby gain some advantage in all foreign markets the price of some manufactures would be reduced in a still greater proportion by the free importation of the raw materials if raw silk could be imported from china and indostan duty-free the silk manufacturers in england could greatly undersell those of both france and italy there will be no occasion to prohibit the importation of foreign silks and velvets the cheapness of their goods would secure to our own workmen not only the possession of a home but a very great command of the foreign market even the trade in the commodities taxed would be carried on with much more advantage than at present if those commodities were delivered out of the public warehouse for foreign exportation being in this case exempted from all taxes the trade in them would be perfectly free the carrying trade in all sorts of goods would under this system enjoy every possible advantage if these commodities were delivered out for home consumption the importer not being obliged to advance the tax till he had an opportunity of selling his goods either to some dealer or to some consumer he could always afford to sell them cheaper than if he had been obliged to advance it at the moment of importation under the same taxes the foreign trade of consumption even in the taxed commodities might in this manner be carried on with much more advantage than it is at present it was the object of the famous excise scheme of sir robert walpole to establish with regard to wine and tobacco a system not very unlike that which is here proposed but though the bill which was then brought into parliament comprehended those two commodities only it was generally supposed to be meant as an introduction to a more extensive scheme of the same kind faction combined with the interest of smuggling merchants raised so violent though so unjust a clamour against that bill that the minister thought proper to drop it and from a dread of exciting a clamour of the same kind none of his successors have dared to resume the project the duties upon foreign luxuries imported for home consumption though they sometimes fall upon the poor fall principally upon people of middling or more than middling fortune such are for example the duties upon foreign wines upon coffee chocolate tea sugar etc the duties upon the cheaper luxuries of home produce destined for home consumption fall pretty equally upon people of all ranks in proportion to their respective expense the poor pay the duties upon malt hops beer and ale upon their own consumption the rich upon both their own consumption and that of their servants the whole consumption of the inferior ranks of people or of those below the middling rank it must be observed is in every country much greater not only in quantity but in value than that of the middling and of those above the middling rank 
the whole expense of the inferior is much greater than that of the superior ranks in the first place almost the whole capital of every country is annually distributed among the inferior ranks of people as the wages of productive labour secondly a great part of the revenue arising from both the rent of land and the profits of stock is annually distributed among the same rank in the wages and maintenance of menial servants and other unproductive labourers thirdly some part of the profits of stock belongs to the same rank as a revenue arising from the employment of their small capitals the amount of the profits annually made by small shopkeepers tradesmen and retailers of all kinds is everywhere very considerable and makes a very considerable portion of the annual produce fourthly and lastly some part even of the rent of land belongs to the same rank a considerable part to those who are somewhat below the middling rank and a small part even to the lowest rank common labourers sometimes possessing in property an acre or two of land though the expense of those inferior ranks of people therefore taking them individually is very small yet the whole mass of it taking them collectively amounts always to by much the largest portion of the whole expense of the society what remains of the annual produce of the land and labour of the country for the consumption of the superior ranks being always much less not only in quantity but in value the taxes upon expense therefore which fall chiefly upon that of the superior ranks of people upon the smaller portion of the annual produce are likely to be much less productive than either those which fall indifferently upon the expense of all ranks or even those which fall chiefly upon that of the inferior ranks than either those which fall indifferently upon the whole annual produce or those which fall chiefly upon the larger portion of it the excise upon the materials and manufacture of home-made fermented and spirituous liquors is accordingly of all the different taxes upon expense by far the most productive and this branch of the excise falls very much perhaps principally upon the expense of the common people in the year which ended on the fifth of july seventeen seventy five the gross produce of this branch of the excise amounted to three million three hundred and forty one thousand eight hundred and thirty seven pounds nine shillings ninepence it must always be remembered however that it is the luxuries and not the necessary expense of the inferior ranks of people that ought ever to be taxed the final payment of any tax upon their necessary expense would fall altogether upon the superior ranks of people upon the smaller portion of the annual produce and not upon the greater such a tax must in all cases either raise the wages of labour or lessen the demand for it it could not raise the wages of labour without throwing the final payment of the tax upon the superior ranks of people it could not lessen the demand for labour without lessening the annual produce of the land and labour of the country the fund upon which all taxes must be finally paid whatever might be the state to which a tax of this kind reduced the demand for labour it must always raise wages higher than they otherwise would be in that state and the final payment of this enhancement of wages must in all cases fall upon the superior ranks of people fermented liquors brewed and spirituous liquors distilled not for sale but for private use are not in great britain liable to any duties of excise this exemption of which the object is to save private families from the odious visit and examination of the tax-gatherer occasions the burden of those duties to fall frequently much lighter upon the rich than upon the poor it is not indeed very common to distill for private use though it is done sometimes but in the country many middling and almost all rich and great families brew their own beer 
Their strong beer, therefore, costs them eight shillings a barrel less than it costs the common brewer, who must have his profit upon the tax, as well as upon all the other expense which he advances. Such families, therefore, must drink their beer at least nine or ten shillings a barrel cheaper than any liquor of the same quality can be drank by the common people, to whom it is everywhere more convenient to buy their beer, by little and little, from the brewery or the alehouse. Malt, in the same manner, that is, made for the use of a private family, is not liable to the visit or examination of the tax-gatherer, but, in this case, the family must compound at seven shillings and sixpence a head for the tax. Seven shillings and sixpence are equal to the excise upon ten bushels of malt, a quantity fully equal to what all the different members of any sober family, men, women, and children, are, at an average, likely to consume. But in rich and great families, where country hospitality is much practised, the malt liquors consumed by the members of the family make but a small part of the consumption of the house. Either on account of this composition, however, or for other reasons, it is not near so common to malt as to brew for private use. It is difficult to imagine any equitable reason why those who either brew or distill for private use should not be subject to a composition of the same kind. A greater revenue than what is at present drawn from all the heavy taxes upon malt, beer, and ale might be raised, it has frequently been said, by a much lighter tax upon malt the opportunities of defrauding the revenue being much greater in a brewery than in a malt-house, and those who brew for private use being exempted from all duties or composition for duties, which is not the case with those who malt for private use. In the Porter Brewery of London, a quarter of malt is commonly brewed into more than two barrels and a half, sometimes into three barrels of porter. The different taxes upon malt amount to six shillings a quarter, those upon strong ale and beer to eight shillings a barrel in the porter brewery therefore the different taxes upon malt beer and ale amount to between twenty-six and thirty shillings upon the produce of a quarter of malt in the country brewery for common country sale a quarter of malt is seldom brewed into less than two barrels of strong and one barrel of small beer frequently into two barrels and a half of strong beer the different taxes upon small beer amount to one shilling and fourpence a barrel. In the country brewery, therefore, the different taxes upon malt, beer, and ale seldom amount to less than twenty-three shillings and fourpence, frequently to twenty-six shillings, upon the produce of a quarter of malt. Taking the whole kingdom at an average, therefore, the whole amount of the duties upon malt, beer, and ale cannot be estimated at less than twenty-four or twenty-five shillings upon the produce of a quarter of malt but by taking off all the different duties upon beer and ale and by trebling the malt tax or by raising it from six to eighteen shillings upon the quarter of malt a greater revenue it is said might be raised by this single tax than what is at present drawn from all those heavier taxes under the old malt tax indeed is comprehended a tax of four shillings upon the hogshead of cider and another of ten shillings upon the barrel of mum in 1774, the tax upon cider produced only 3,083 pounds, 6 shillings, 8 pence. It probably fell somewhat short of its usual amount, all the different taxes upon cider having that year produced less than ordinary. The tax upon mum, though much heavier, is still less productive on account of the smaller consumption of that liquor. But to balance whatever may be the ordinary amount of those two taxes, there is comprehended under what is called the country excise, first the old excise of six shillings and eight pence upon the hogshead of cider, 
secondly a like tax of six shillings and eight pence upon the hogshead of verjuice thirdly another of eight shillings and nine pence upon the hogshead of vinegar and lastly a fourth tax of eleven pence upon the gallon of mead or methaglen the produce of those different taxes will probably much more than counterbalance that of the duties imposed by what is called the annual malt tax upon cider and mum End of Book 5, Chapter 2, Part F.